Hello and welcome to the Brave Business Podcast brought to you by accounting, tax audit and advisory firm Blick Rothenberg. Brave by name and brave by nature, this series is different. Aimed at entrepreneurial businesses, we focus on providing market updates, practical guidance, timely insights and professional opinions from industry experts, helping you make informed decisions for your business. I'm Declan Curry, journalist and broadcaster. This is the first of two episodes that focus on the key considerations for an owner-managed business during its life cycle, from startup through to maturity and finally sale and succession. In part one, that's today, we will focus on the startup and financing phase of a business. Joining me to discuss this and to share their expertise and insight from Blick Rothenberg partner Stephanie Levin. And we're also joined by Rob Kaplan, who's co-founder of First Wealth. Welcome to both of you. Rob, we'll hear a bit more about what First Wealth is in a minute. But Stephanie, what makes a good business? Is it someone waking up in the morning with a great idea? Is it a bolt of inspiration while you're in the shower or in a bath? Where does the journey start? Yeah, definitely. I think it does start with that. I think the businesses that I work with really stem from somebody having that passion and that enthusiasm to make something a success. And then obviously around that, you need to deal with the structuring and how do you go from having that good idea to actually running a business. And that's where we help a lot of people because a lot of people with great ideas have never run a business before. So some of the things we would look at with people would be, will you be a limited company or will you be a sole trader or a partnership? A lot of people like to be a limited company because you get the limited liability protection around you and corporation tax rates are lower than income tax rates. But sometimes that's not the right decision for everyone. Uh, perhaps if someone's got other income from other sources, then it might be good to be a sole trader or a partnership because they can offset any business losses from the new venture against that income. So getting the structure right at the beginning is actually really important. We'll talk through some of the implications of that in uh, a little while. Rob, if you can illustrate some of this for us, what were the first steps for First Wealth? Tell us what First Wealth is, first of all. So First Wealth is a firm of chartered financial planners. We're based in Marlebone, London. We look after private clients, typically high net worth individuals. But the majority of our clients are probably business owners or professionals. But with the business owners, obviously, as being business owners ourselves, we kind of get the nuances that they're dealing with in day-to-day -day life. So we kind of really try and work on three things with them. It's about helping them see their financial future with extreme clarity, building a financial plan. Then we will move on to the wealth management side, actually how you fund that plan. And then we'll do some coaching with them on an ongoing basis to make sure they stick to that plan. Um, so that's the kind of three things that we do for our clients. And was that always your idea for the business from the very start or has it evolved over time? No, it's, it's changed quite dramatically. I suppose it was kind of five years into our journey, I'd say approximately, where when we'd set up the business, we'd kind of set it up thinking we were doing something dramatically different. And I think we realized after a while that we just reversed the type. So we kind of, my business partner and I had this existential crisis a little bit where we said, do we only exist here just to make rich people richer? Or actually, is there something more that we can actually help with people? Are the questions which our clients are actually asking us, are we actually answering them? Or are we just telling them what we think they want to hear? And I think that, you know, once we kind of looked at that as like generally, typically the clients were all asking us one question which we probably weren't answering when we were focused on their money rather than them. And that was, am I going to be okay? And so then once you kind of realize, right, they need an answer to that question, 
how do we adopt a service? How do we make sure we've got a product and a company which actually helps them to answer that? Okay, we're probably skipping ahead just a little in the story, and I know that we'll talk a little about how the business has developed over time, but just the actual, the starting up, the first stage, you you were in employment, you were in a job. Yes. That thunderbolt moment where you thought, I've got this idea, I think it can be a business, I think it can be successful, I'm going to give it a go. Talk us through that came from a point of where when you're working in a business and you're feeling that you're not being able to actually be your actual self so you know Stephanie talks about this whole idea of you know making sure you're doing something which you're passionate about and that you actually want to kind of do I was passionate about helping clients about speaking to clients and actually helping them on their journey towards financial freedom and success but I was feeling that in my previous company where I was doing that I wasn't able to actually deliver upon that. And you, you set the business up when? 2008. 2008. So it's, it's been around for a while now. The, that's an interesting uh, time, Stephanie, to uh, set up a business. 2008, of course, being the uh, the year of the, the credit crunch and the financial crisis. And I, you know, I know a lot of entrepreneurs from that time who set up a business because some of them had lost their jobs. Some of them had had just that sort of Damascus moment of uh, thinking, is this what I want to do with the rest of my life? Some of them thought, oh, I've had this great idea all the time. I'm going to go and do something with it. So once you've had that inspiration or that moment where you think, I can make a go of this, what do you do next? What's the next thing you need to do? So really get some professional advice around structuring. So just alluding back to what I said before, you know, how are we going to run this business? In what vehicle? And then there's just the basics around registering with HMRC for taxes. So whether that's income tax or corporation tax, depending on what structure you've got. And things like VAT, so you don't need to be registered for that until your sales are more than 85,000. But actually some businesses do that voluntarily a lot earlier just because it can help cash flow to get the, the VAT refunds in quicker. And there's a question as well about how seasonal the income is. If you've got a lot of money coming in in one quarter and not in the others, you may have to register for VAT anyway this shows why you need the advice the law is complex you, you've mentioned a couple of times now the importance of structure remind us again what are the different options available so there's a standard limited company which is one of the most popular choices and with that you get a limited liability protection because the company is a separate entity so god forbid anything went wrong someone sued you in the business then you yourself and your personal assets are all completely protected you as an entrepreneur would be a director of that company that's right, absolutely, and a shareholder of the company. Um, it also professionalises a business in a lot of ways to have a company. And when you're looking for external investment and other people looking at the business to actually present a company where you can offer somebody shares in the business, it is good. Otherwise, it's really the traditional sole trader partnership route. Um, there's also a hybrid, which is a limited liability partnership, which is just a bit of a combination between the both of them. What I would say in the early stages, and it's absolutely critical for me, is having a business plan and not just an overarching idea about what you want to do with the a business big idea having a financial forecast for me is critical at the beginning and just having that cash flow plan to know what's coming up where do I need funding whether that's you know the owner putting in funding themselves or looking externally but paying your suppliers on time paying your new staff on time those types of things are critical in the early stages just to build those relationships and uh, give, give the business credibility and even really practical things it needs a bank account 
Absolutely. And you'd be surprised, well, maybe you wouldn't be surprised, but getting a business bank account opened is one of the hardest things that business owners have to deal with today because just the, the paperwork and who should I bank with. And um, so, so I, yeah, I do a lot of advisory around just getting over these initial I know, it, it sounds terribly mundane, but it's hugely sort of important, in particularly in the, the early days. You, you talked about a business plan. Yeah. What is a business plan? What must it contain to be credible? So for me, there's two parts. I guess one is the narrative around what you're hoping to achieve with the business. So what's your strategy? Who's your client base? Who are your competitors? And it doesn't have to be a glossy 50-page document. For a startup business, it might just be a page of thoughts and bullet points. But as I was saying, the financial plan really needs to be given some thought. And that isn't just about how profitable we're going to be. It is literally cash flow, in and out, month by month. Is anyone going to pay us anything for the first six months? Or have we really got to find enough funding to you know, start fitting out premises to bring a team on board. And what's that going to cost? And really just mapping that out month on month. And that's where it's it's great to get professional advice and, and a bit of oversight as to what should be included. Are these projections wild guesses, best hopes, or do they have to have some basis in reality? I think a combination. I think there has to be some basis. I think um, in doing the exercise, it actually focuses a business owner on you know, what it's going to cost. So going from that, like you said, the thunderbolt moment in the shower of I'm going to do this and then actually sort of planning it out, realising, okay, maybe maybe I can't do quite that, but what can I do? So I think there needs to be a lot of initial research and conversations. You know, do you need a premises? In, in which case, how much does it cost to rent a, you know, a studio in London or whatever you need? So that there has to be substance behind it. Rob, what's your experience of that particular element of the process your your business plan for example when you were putting it together what was going through your mind I think exactly the, the points which Stephanie makes I think for us remembering back to that kind of period the cash flow was definitely the thing which kind of panicked us that the kind of most obviously especially when you're first starting out you don't have many uh, fees coming in but everything seems to still be going out um, and so that whole kind of cash flow issue um, was particularly kind of challenging to kind of manage. And I suppose the, the business plan allowed us to kind of say, look, this is what we need to get us through this period of time. We know that once we can kind of get to X, as long as we do Z, then we're going to be okay and we, we, we should be able to kind of get through that. All I would say is, is even now within the business and the kind of life cycle of the business where, where we're at right now today, cash flow is still an issue, right? Like cash flow is just bigger, bigger numbers, bigger problems, bigger issues, you know, because we've got dreams, goals and ambitions of what we want to try and achieve. And the numbers are now a lot larger. So, you know, we're not kind of living on the edge, maybe as we were in the, those days, it's not those types of cash flow issues, but that they're still a cash flow issues. Did you get help with it? Did you need help with it? Yeah, so uh, we've always employed uh, the services um, of an accountant. We were using the previous firms that Blit Rothenberg acquired. We were using them for management accounts. And then we had a separate accountant, separate um, payroll. Um, and then eventually now uh, Blitz look after everything. For entrepreneurs who really are starting from scratch, what is the point when they should realistically be saying, we need help? Yeah, I think often a turning point for people is when they hire somebody because that's something you don't want to get wrong. And the regulations now around having a payroll, having an auto-enrolment pension scheme, minimum wage, there's so many things to consider. So often people will come to me with, 
you know, we've done some preliminary work and it's just been myself and now actually I need to bring some people on. So we need to make sure we've got a structure. We need to make sure we've done the right registrations with HMRC. So that's often a trigger point and, and that's where we tend to get involved. And, and generally it then snowballs because then we talk about the back registration and, you know, and once you've actually got transactions starting to happen, then you've got the piece around the bookkeeping and the management accounts and, I mean, for any business, but you know, maybe more so in the early days, having really good management information every month or every quarter so you can actually track what is happening to this cash. Um, and that's something a lot of people don't necessarily think about, um, you know, until they've sort of been presented with it. They don't really know that they've missed it. And then, you know, as, as Rob will know, you know, those management accounts are actually really critical to, to looking at what is going on every month and being able to make really quick decisions if things need to change. And just in case these are unfamiliar terms for people who are listening to us, management accounts, they're different from the accounts you give the tax man at the end of the year. They're similar. They are given more regularly. So management accounts, I mean, you know, a, a cash flow and a profit and loss account. So what has the business done every month? What's come in? What's gone out? What income? What expenses? Um, obviously, that will tie into the annual accounts as well. Uh, Rob, you started with, it was you and just one employee wasn't it yes I, i'm assuming you have many many more uh, than that now what was the point when you went when you had an extra person when you needed to hire someone else was that the first time that it, it felt to you like oh we're really growing now i think it wasn't necessarily about just the staff in terms of feeling that we're actually kind of achieving and growing um but yeah i think obviously as we start to kind of add it and build the team you all of a sudden look around you and think, right, oh my God, there's like 10 people here. I'm responsible for all of them. Actually, we're onto something here and we need to keep on kind of getting bigger and better. I'm just wondering how that felt for you as, as the person who founded the business. As it's growing, are you, is it intimidating? Uh, are you feeling pride that it's been successful? Is it keeping you up at night? I think it's a mixture of both. I think it's probably somewhere in between proud and terrified um and i think as a business owner you're always kind of dealing with this uncertainty um and i think that that's what kind of drives me on i think you've got to have a degree of uncertainty and you've got to be comfortable with uncertainty as a business owner um and as a founder of a business and you know things obviously the planning is really important but things don't as we all know things don't go to plan and you've got to be able to kind of adapt and change um but uh, yeah, like I look around often at the Christmas party and I think, wow, this room of people here are because of like what we've done and uh, I'm responsible for them. Talk me through the early growth stages of the business. What were the landmarks? Landmarks were first doing, you know, the first kind of year was just building up clients. Then obviously it was kind of like, let's hit £100,000 of turnover. Um, in terms of kind of fees generated, that was kind of big landmark for the, for us then. And um, then it was actually getting our own offices. So at the before that, we'd been in another company's offices, and they, that company had taken some equity and stake in our business. So actually, then getting our own office, which was actually ours, um, was a kind of big landmark moment. Um, eventually, signing a lease on a building, which we were a self-contained unit, was a kind of big moment. As the team broke twenty people, was a big moment starting to be recognized by the industry and winning lots of professional awards um, and then most recently uh, attaining a certified B Corp status. We'll look at, uh, at those in turn. Financing was one of the earlier things that uh, you mentioned there. Just flesh that out for us. Your financing, you, you said that an investor took an equity stake. 
Yeah, so I was in a fortunate position where when I left my previous company, um, I joined and my brother and father ran a mortgage business. Um, so on day one, I was kind of sat in a desk in their office and they I was given a list of kind of clients' names, etc., um, who I could speak to. They hadn't done investments or pensions advice before. And so I was able to kind of uh, build up a client bank in that way. And then after a while, you know, around 2008, when I felt uncomfortable doing this on my own, I decided I needed a business partner. My business partner, Anthony, um, joined me. Um, and in order to kind of get the business up and running, my brother and father took equity in uh, First Wealth, the, the new business, um, which meant that we didn't need to worry about rent and um, paying for you know certain kind of key um, expenses straight away whilst we didn't have cash flow. Stephanie, that's going to be fairly typical for many businesses that the first place you turn to for money to help set it up or to help it through the early years are friend and families. Yeah, absolutely. And that, that's what we see with many businesses. Um, the question is whether, you know, the friends and family are going to be more involved longer term and how this is structured. So whether is it a loan that has an interest rate and it's sort of, you know, given on more commercial terms or whether it's an, yeah, an equity state for the long term. Um, and then and, and families can fall out. Families can fall out. Yes, we've seen that numerous times, which is why sometimes even if, if it is an investment from a family member, you do want to formalize it a bit. And as I say, have that interest rate if it is a loan and terms of repayment. And then everyone's really clear what, what that relates to. What are some of the other options? I, I know of a lot of entrepreneurs who their first thought was, I must go to the bank. And then they had to go to another bank and then another bank and then another bank before eventually they find one that said yes. Yeah, and that, that's a natural place for a lot of people. And some people may feel that they don't have any other options other to go to the bank. Often what we see is a combination of funding. You know, generally people like funding a business where they see the invest the founder funding it as well. So so that's important. Um, but just going externally. So once you've gone, you know, sort of, you know, friends and family, looking for external investors through your network, um, you know, VC firms that are actively looking for companies to invest in. And actually, HMRC are making it really nice and tax efficient for people to invest in startups and growing businesses. So if you found someone that's interested, they've got the funds, um, they can get in income tax relief on, on making the investment. Are there networks out there that can help with that? The sort of networks of investors or places where advice is available on who to contact? There are firms that deal with that. Um, more often than not, it is through individual connections. So, you know, your uncle's business partner and, you know, there's people that you know. Just ask, just ask everyone. Just, just ask yeah. everyone. Just ask everyone. But there are specific firms that can, that can help you. I know that in the discussion with the banks, the banks will often say they want a sign of real commitment from you. They want skin yes. in the game. So you may end up having to make really big personal decisions like remortgaging the house. Yes, which is a huge commitment at the beginning. And, and that's why, you know, going with a bank isn't always um, a good option. Other sources of funding that are sometimes just overlooked because they're not obvious or they're not well known about or people just aren't familiar with. There are some government schemes, tends to be for sort of certain business types, certain sectors. So sometimes HMRC are more generous than we know about, actually. But tend, they tend to be quite niche areas and you have to know where to look. So it's sort of where you get some quite specific advice around that. But generally, it is friends, family, banks and personal funds. And then the question is around, you know, whether it's debt, whether it's equity, how much are you prepared to give away? Because obviously the ultimate position is for you to own 100% of your business. But if you need the funds, you know, you have to be prepared to give away some equity. 
Rob, what about some of the other basics like market research or finding new customers or getting the word out that you're in business? How did you do that? Yeah, so I think, again, if I talk about this whole idea of that the, the problems at the start are still probably the problems today, just in a slightly bigger scale, but problems at the start, cash flow one, yes, and trying to attain and get new clients, and also the cost of getting new clients. Um, we were, again, so we kind of thought of two kind of main methods um, to work with professional introducers, so companies who we knew and whose services we were using um, and who we trusted um, to then work on, see, right, could we get attained clients uh, through them and then through our existing clients, making sure that we were delivering a really kind of good service and a product to them and actually asking our clients for, do you know any other people who are similar to yourselves that we could help um, and make it really clear that we were open for business. And I think that sounds really obvious, but I think far too many maybe clients who you're dealing with don't necessarily know that you actually want lots more clients because you might not want lots more clients depending on what your stage you're at in your career or your business. So you're building your own sort of organic network there. Yeah, exactly. And then they will tell their friends. And again, we ran seminars and things like that. So you kind of get a group of people together on a particular topic and um, you maybe give them a bit of food and drink and uh, you kind of get them there and we can kind of talk and you ask them to bring a friend with or uh, bring some, someone else with who maybe isn't a client of the business. So again, we, we did lots of these types of events. I was going to a business networking meetings at 6 a.m. every Friday morning um, at the Holiday Inn in Harrow. That was uh, an experience. Um, so, <laughs> but again, like some of, if I now think of some of my best networks were probably built up through kind of going to that, that kind of meeting. Nowadays, we'd just go on LinkedIn, wouldn't we? Yeah, pretty much, yes, how <laughs> things have changed. Yeah. <laughs> things have moved on. Uh, in your industry, of course, the finance industry, there's a lot of regulation there. There's a lot of uh, things with which you have to comply. How did you make sure you were on the right side of that from the very start? I think it's nothing more complicated than we surrounded ourselves with good people and good advice. Um, so again, from the tax side, making sure we're working with a good uh, qualified um, accountant who actually is going to add value to our situation and not just listen to us. I think it was working with good lawyers um, and making sure that we had all the kind of right legal stuff in place. And then on the compliance side, we made the decision uh, straight away that we didn't want to be dealing with compliance in-house again. So again, we look at outsourcing that. We work with a brilliant firm of chartered network called Best Practice. Um, who assist us and help us with all of those kind of concerns. And Stephanie, this comes back again to the idea that if you've set the business up yourself and you have that emotional attachment to it, you have that investment in it, you sometimes, you might be reluctant to ask for help because you like to think that you know all the answers. But there's no shame in saying, this is really complicated or I need specialist advice here. Absolutely. And I, I say to my clients who come to us for outsourcing services for all of this, you know, this is great that you've got to this point because what it means is that you need to spend your time on your business. Why would you want to sit at your desk and deal with all of these things when you can get a professional to do it? Go out, find new clients, do the things that you love. And that's why, as what we're saying, you really do rely on your professional team to support with that. And obviously, you know, as the business grows and gains clients and customers, then it's ever more important that all of this compliance is done properly because you become more exposed and just for your own peace of mind to know it's dealt with. Growth isn't always a straight line. How do you prepare for the rainy day when things aren't going right? 
again, it comes back to your business plan and what you're trying to achieve and do. But it's, again, it's a, as a financial planner, it's my job with individuals to sit down and make sure that we can prepare for life's curveballs. So whether that's having the right insurance in place, making sure you've got an emergency fund, whatever those kind of uh, m- might be. And so therefore, as a business owner, those things were quite obvious to us in terms of, right, we need to make sure that, okay, just because we've got X in the bank, that we're not just simply spending that, what do we need to kind of keep back? I think in the early days, so, you know, we talked about uh, the structure of the companies in the early days, we were set up as an LLP. And I think if I'm honest, you know, we, we found managing that structure a lot more difficult than now that we're a limited company, um, just in terms of uh, the amount of kind of cash flow and how we were kind of dealing with the tax situation. Um, and for whatever reasons, that, that became a lot more difficult um, and, and therefore we moved to a limited company. And again, just just for those who are unfamiliar with the terms, LLP is a partnership. Limited company is the structure that you went to. Yeah. Just encapture it for me in a line or two why limited company turned out to be better for you. I think Stephanie would probably do it more justice than me, but in in terms of, from my point, it was we were able to manage our personal tax situation better through a limited company than we were via an LLP. This is one of the early decisions that you need to make as an entrepreneur. Yeah, a limited liability partnership is a bit of a luxury for tax, so you're taxed on all of your profits. So whether you draw them out or whether you don't, your taxes, personal tax, income tax, whereas a company... 19% broadly of your profits is corporation tax. The timing of when your tax is paid is different. It it can be a bit easier to manage. You said something really interesting at the start when you were describing how the companies developed, that you hit a stage when you felt you had to reinvent the business. Yeah. Was that something that it was so obvious that you were able to do it really easily? Or did that involve an awful lot of soul searching? It became obvious because I suppose my business partner and I had always joked about we will stop doing this when we stop having fun or we stop achieving growth. And I think at that stage, we were still achieving growth and we were being really successful, but we definitely stopped having fun doing it. Um, wasn't enjoying the day to day of the job. I wasn't enjoying talking to people about stock market returns, which, again, I think a lot of people think they're coming to a financial advisor to ask about. Um, so it wasn't. And I felt I wasn't adding really any value. So all of the things which I wanted to do, I want to help people. I want to have great conversations. I want to make sure people feel comfortable. They understand where they're heading. Again, I'd end up talking to them about things which actually I couldn't control, like external influences like the stock market and what was going on in the economy and and, and just being another person who predicts stuff and probably gets it wrong. See, Stephanie, this is one of the great strengths of smaller businesses is that they are agile, they are nimble, they are able to hop around from opportunity to opportunity. But but that point where you have to hit the reset button. Yes, it's challenging. And actually, we saw it a lot through COVID. So I mentioned my restaurant client earlier, and I have others in the hospitality industry. So obviously, doors closed, no business. Well, what can you do? So I had one great business that actually then turned into an online pasta delivery business and completely restructured their business plan and have actually, even obviously the doors can now be open, they're continuing with that line of business because having sat down and rethought it all, it's actually working really well for them. Um, so often things like that, it's just a pivotal point to think, okay, which direction do we need to go in? And again, sort of a broad point, it's okay to admit we've made a mistake or we've gone down the wrong path and we need to reverse out of it a bit. 
absolutely. And I think a lot of the characteristics of entrepreneurs, and you know, as you know, Rob, very well, I think, you know, these types of people are, are just sort of lend themselves to making those types of decisions and not afraid to take a risk, can really foresee when, when things might need a change of direction and can just crack on and do it. There's the word risk. That's what it's all about, isn't it? I think it's about risk and wanting to challenge yourself, which obviously therefore kind of go hand in hand. When you grew from one employee to more than one, how did you find the people that you needed? Initially, we made the decision to use recruitment consultants, you know, as a small kind of company without really our own office. Um, it was definitely harder and therefore we had to use a, a recruitment company. As you become more successful, as you start to really know what you are about as a company, we started to understand that really using a recruitment company was not the way forward. And, uh, you know, today we're, we're lucky and in a position where people, most people kind of contact us directly or we'll we, we use LinkedIn in order to kind of do that. But it was very much about that kind of change happened when we really identified the culture of the individual, which we kind of wanted. You know, we kind of ripped off uh, Netflix and kind of produced a culture deck um, in terms of, right, this is what we want the company to be about. These are our core values, and therefore every single person, I don't really care what your qualifications and experience and background are to a certain extent, certainly for some of the roles, not at all, um, but every single hire had to hit one of those kind of core values, um, if not all of those core values. Um, and then it was a case of making sure we had the right people in the right seat. So we had some great people in our business that actually probably doing the wrong jobs for their particular type of personality or, um, or, or culture. And so therefore, it was about switching, right, they're great people, we don't want to lose them, let's switch them into other roles, and let's hire in people to fill those other positions. So you're recruiting for attitude? A hundred percent. Again, every single time where we've not done that, that person is no longer with us. This is such a minefield, though, isn't it? It is. And it's not just about finding those people, it's about keeping them and retaining them. And, and different people are obviously motivated by different things, whether that's opportunity, you know, in, in their jobs or the financial side. Um, what we're seeing a lot of businesses doing is looking at things like giving them shares in the business or options to buy shares in the future and really incentivizing these people long term to stay with the business. And that's quite popular at the moment. OK, truth or dare time. What's the biggest mistake that you've learned from the biggest harlier that you made, the thing that most embarrasses you about the startup journey? I think for us in my profession and my industry, the way in which you manage money. So I think that that sounds... That's fairly fundamental. For yeah, so you, you think that, right? <laughs> but the problem is, is, is as I kind of went through my qualifications and went through my previous company, um, and then when I started our company, we kind of did it in that way as well. You were told... Again, everyone was telling me that this is the way in which you should be doing it. So again, when I talk about this, it's, it's, I'm referring to active management. So everyone was telling me that, right, these certain people can actually outperform and uh, the stock market. And so again, you're listening and you're taught all of that and you're doing all of uh, your learning around actually active managers should be able to outperform, especially in a downturn. And you're looking at all of this and you're believing that we, we adopted that policy and then it was only after a certain period of time, we were like, these guys are adding zero value. Um, the stock market delivers returns above 99% of these people. Let's not try and find that 1%. So you're right, it's a hugely fundamental thing. And we got that wrong, I think, um, at the start. Um, and then we corrected that. You must have seen some mistakes in your time. 
I'm not going to ask you to name clients. That would that would that would breach the the wall of confidentiality. Yeah, no, that's true. And often we we come along after the mistake has been made, and and can we help and can we fix it? Often we see mistakes just that can be fixed, where it's to do with sort of regulations, or we've done this, we've had a great idea, we've given somebody twenty percent of shares in the business. Okay, brilliant. You know, there's now a huge tax liability. Did you think about that? Right, let's think about ways to do it. Um, so some people do things with the best intentions, just get carried away, and then. Sometimes we can unpick these things and sometimes we just have to deal with the consequences. But, but yes, lots of mistakes. With the, the wealth of experience and expertise that you now have, what, you're about 14 years into the, the journey now, top bits of advice that you'd pass on to someone at the start of the journey, what should they know that you wish you'd known? Uh, be patient um, and don't be scared of that uncertainty. So I think, you know, again, we're, as a business owner starting off, you want to go at 100 miles straight away. You want to see, you know, 10x growth every single year upon year. That's probably not going to happen every single year. Understand your process, trust that process and be patient with it. You know, again, it's a bit of a cheesy line, but if you plant a seed, you don't dig it up after five minutes to check on it. Trust the process. The seed is there. Let's water it. Um, if you've got a good product, if you genuinely believe in what you're doing, it may not happen straight away. There may not be instant fireworks, um, but eventually you'll get there. And where's next for you? Where's next for us is around opening up the advice process. So we truly believe that great financial planning can change people's lives. But I'm also very conscious of the fact that the majority of people can't afford or don't have access to a financial advisor. So our new company, which we just recently launched, again, with the help of Stephanie, um, is all around aimed at financial education, helping to empower people to make good financial decisions, trying to replicate the process which we do through First Wealth for clients, but doing it through online digital courses um, and doing it at a fraction of the cost of full, full financial advice. Top tips for new entrepreneurs. Get advice. Don't try and do it all yourself. And when you start to grow, really make sure that your systems and processes and, and compliance side is taken care of. Get the fundamentals right at the beginning. And as you grow and go through the stages, that will really serve you well. And make sure you have a business plan. Stephanie, Rob, thank you both very much for sharing your expertise and your experience with us. If you'd like further insights around the owner-managed business lifecycle, you can visit Blick Rothenberg's Entrepreneurs Hub for further insights. That's www.blickrothenberg.com slash entrepreneurs with an S on the end. I'm Declan Curry. This has been the Blick Rothenberg Brave Business Podcast. Thank you so much for being part of our conversation.